0: We have talked on this program many times in the past about the so-called opioid crisis currently raging in America. And uh, on past shows, I mentioned that I wanted to bring someone on who I think could talk about this in an intelligent way. And today's the day to do it. So I'm pleased to be able to welcome to Radio Parallax my good friend and esteemed colleague, Dr. Roger Orman. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Roger. Thank you very much, Doug. It's a pleasure to be with you and have you visiting Murphy's. And it's indeed a pleasure to be in Murphy's, which is a wonderful town. Roger, let's explain who you are. You are qualified to talk about the subject of pain because you actually operate a clinic that specifically deals with that issue.
1: I was actually trained with you in family medicine back in Merced, California, and we both completed our residency. I practiced family medicine for about five years and saw a lot of patients in chronic pain and didn't know exactly what's the best treatment for them. I saw some patients on high-dose opiates that were doing fine, and I saw other patients that were miserable and did terribly and then would develop psychiatric problems and depression. So after about five years of practicing family medicine, I decided to learn about chronic pain, and I did a residency in anesthesiology in Syracuse, New York.
0: I should point out that this is highly unusual. Most doctors, once they've chosen one route to go down, don't go back and decide, I'm going to add to that. And uh, Roger, being one of the smartest guys I know, did that. And this does qualify him to talk about this topic today.
1: I moved back to the West Coast, to Murphy's, and opened a chronic pain clinic with one of my colleagues, another anesthesiologist, about 23 years ago. And I've been treating chronic pain since then, And I also do anesthesiology, where I put people to sleep and get rid of their pain completely. So I know the full spectrum of how pain affects people. Some of the things that I've seen are what are the best ways to treat pain. And every person is different, and every person's reaction to medicines are varied and different. And some person will do extremely well on one medication, an opiate, for instance, and then other people do very poorly on it.
0: Let's talk about that. I don't know how to describe this. There's currently a great effort in the United States to portray the country as being in the grip of a crisis. It is alluded, as they talk about it, to the fact that doctors are over-prescribing these medications, and it's, it's sort of hinted that this is at the root of the problem. It's a broad topic here, and there's a lot of things we can say about it, but I guess, Roger, the first thing I want to do is ask you, just in your assessment... How many deaths are we really seeing across uh, this this country right now due to opioids?
1: The number of deaths from opiates that was reported in 2016, which is when we have the most recent data, was 42,000 deaths from opiates. This includes prescription drugs as well as street drugs such as heroin and whatever else people are injecting into their veins. The magnitude of the problem is really well said by just looking at back in 1999, there was a fifth of the amount of deaths from opiates in our country. So because of this soaring number of deaths, this has been termed the opiate crisis or opioid crisis. And there's been a huge response and a huge backlash in people that have chronic pain getting treatment. For one, they have a great deal of difficulty getting their meds right now. Whereas now, opiates are considered evil, and those who prescribe them are evil doctors and bad doctors, when in in essence, you can find a subgroup of people that don't abuse their opiates, that take their opiates, and it allows them to function. For instance, I have a patient who's 86 years old. She lives independently. She has severe arthritis all through her spine, and she takes six uh, hydrocodone acetaminophen preparations, or Norco tablets, a day and gets along just fine. She's had no episodes of overdose, no episodes of misuse, and she's able to function because of these opiates.
0: I think this is a really, really key point to bring up. The fact of the matter is most people do not have addictive personalities. Most people are able to take such drugs, use them when they need them, use them appropriately, and stop when it's no longer necessary. Someone like this, an elderly person in chronic pain, well, there may be no ability in the future to see them coming off of it, but since this maintains their lifestyle, is this not what every doctor properly should be doing?
1: It is, and you can check them, and you can do urine analysis to make sure they're not abusing them, but the bottom line is it enhances their quality of life. Another thing to keep in mind is that even though there were 42,000 deaths from opiates, only 40% of these deaths involve prescription medications. Key point. Key which point. is a key point because the vast majority or 60% of these deaths were from people that are shooting street drugs. What they think is heroin, which is laced with uh, fentanyl or carfentanyl, which is a very potent version of fentanyl. And the problem is, is that these potent versions of fentanyl are created synthetically in factories in China and then flooding the American market and that would be okay, but the problem is is that they are 100 to 150 times more potent than street heroin and
0: morphine. And yet, When you hear people discussing this on a radio program, not long ago, Margaret Talbot, who's been on this program, a wonderful author at The New Yorker, did a piece on going to West Virginia and describing the carnage taking place from the drug abuse. But the article, and she was talking about it, talked about doctors' prescribed medication, and talked about street drugs, and just sort of blended the two together. They're two very separate things that I think that gets lost in the discussion.
1: Exactly. Because if you look at the total number of prescriptions for opiates, the number of prescriptions for opiates in 2016 was 214 million. And that compares to 2006, when there were 215 million. So the total number of prescriptions for opiates really hasn't changed. And, and the fact of the matter is, a lot of people can take opiates, use them for their pain, acute pain or chronic pain, and then not be addicted.
0: An example that I brought up many times, I'm, I'm sure you can say something about. My dad, late in life, was suffering from chronic pain to the point where he needed something more than pills. They implanted a morphine pump in him, which completely changed his quality of life. He was able to function fine for a couple of years by virtue of the fact that he would get morphine on a regular basis with extra doses as he needs it. Now we doctors are being accused of of addicting everybody again but the fact of the matter is in this case have you made a morphine addict out of somebody? Well I suppose you could look at it that way but the key thing is isn't that what you should be doing and isn't that the right thing to do by all standards?
1: What we aim to do is to improve people's quality of life and I am convinced that a lot of my patients that I see in my pain clinic would have committed suicide years ago had they not had access to opiate pain medication because they've had five surgeries or four surgeries on their back or their neck and the surgery didn't work. They've tried anti-inflammatory medicines that the FDA and everyone says is safer. They've had ulcers from these meds. These are, these are dangerous drugs as well. And says we should stress are not a free ride. There's no free ride because the downside is you can have liver toxicity and you can have ulcers or stomach problems. So opiates for some patients work extremely well. However, there are people that do abuse the drugs and it's those few that make it hard on the legitimate chronic pain patient.
0: In my experience, all these years of treating people, mainly in urgent cares, it's, it's a fact that every single day in an urgent care, you're going to probably be dealing with a drug seeker. Someone's going to come in trying to cage drugs out of you. But from what I observed, for every such patient, there were many others who were fearful of opiates and didn't want to take them. If you'd say, well, you're in a lot of pain, maybe I can give you something that will really help with that. And then we'll, doc, I don't want to give you something that I'll get addicted to. And the fact of the matter is most people are not going to get addicted to opiates.
1: The vast majority of people will take it for their chronic pain and then not have any further problems with it.
0: This is, this is being lost in the shuffle as they keep acting as though we can use uh, ibuprofen in the place of opiates. But even, you know, thousands of years after opium was first discovered and used, it really is still our standard for, for pain relief.
1: Yeah, if you've ever taken pain medicine when you have genuine pain, then you would appreciate the opiate more than any other pain medicine that we have. Although there is a better... Uh, way to treat chronic pain trouble is it involves general anesthesia which is what i do the other four days of the week and then you're not going to function at all because you'll be totally asleep
0: yes we don't recommend this for anyone short of michael jackson and we wouldn't have recommended it for him either
1: well i wish michael jackson had hired an anesthesiologist instead of a cardiologist to help him sleep at night because at least then he would have been monitored and he'd still be alive yes yes
0: Well, there's been a seesawing back and forth on on this issue. Roger, I'm sure you recall one of the, well, I'm not going to mention his name, but a surgeon that we worked with who trained us in in surgical matters back in the the days when we were residents. I can well recall the time when he became the patient and had to have gallbladder surgery. And he came back a rather changed man. He looked at his residents and sort of said, you know... I've been a little stingy with the pain reliever. I've now realized how much these things hurt, and I'm going to be a lot more generous in the future.
1: Yeah, that's true. It's until you as a physician or a prescriber or regulator experience pain yourself and have pain relief, you won't really appreciate
0: the good that these medications can do. In general, there's been a changing of attitude. Back when we were residents, the so-called triplicate prescriptions, if you wanted to prescribe, say, morphine, for a patient were a pain in the butt to get. The You had to jump through hoops, the DAA. Most of us did not bother. So I can well recalling having a patient who was going to require morphine where we had to go to our medical director who had triplicates and he was the one that would write it. And I'm sure that that happened to you as well.
1: Yeah, it did in fact. But the regulation has tightened up to the point where now hydrocodone, which used to used to be
0: able to call in, and now it requires that special prescription but let me, let me jump in and say that we, we, the pendulum swung profoundly the other way. Back 20 years ago, there was a lawsuit or two where patients' families sued their doctor for allowing their loved one to suffer needlessly. And there was a great uh, awakening, I would say, of, of the thought process uh, among the powers that be that said, you know, we doctors really do have to be better about treating pain. So everyone in California who I think wasn't a radiologist was required to do 12- units of continuing medical education to discuss these medications and remind us above all else of the need to treat the patients that had pain. At that point they, they eliminated the triplicate prescription uh, system and they had other, other prescriptions that were easier for us to use but now of course we're seeing the pendulum swing back the other way and I'm not happy about it.
1: It's unfortunate because pain was rated as the fifth vital sign and everybody should pay attention to it and now They just tell you, well, how much pain can you take? And they pretty much ignore your pain unless you specifically ask them. And then they will reluctantly prescribe opiates. But then your insurance company will then say, you've reached 120 milligrams of morphine equivalents of pain meds, and you can't have any more, no matter what your diagnosis is. It's going to hopefully... Swing the other way again, and arrive somewhere in the middle where we will be able to p- to treat the people that have genuine pain, and those that you know are drug seekers. Obviously, are always going to have problems uh, getting medications. The problem is, is that pain is a subjective experience. While I can experience pain, and tolerate it and not be comfortable, other people have a different threshold for asking for pain meds and for help, and so they require more pain medicine. So once again, it requires a physician and someone to understand the patient and tailor their pain medicine to them to really be able to properly treat it.
0: And something else we probably... uh should mention is the fact that if, if your pain goes on and on and it's not being adequately treated, is this not one of the main reasons we see people getting depressed, which is itself an epidemic?
1: Yeah, depression throughout our our society is very common. And if you've had pain for more than three months, it's very likely you will have chronic pain. I mean, and associated with that pain, you will have depression. It will affect your life. It may make you anxious. It may make it difficult for you to function. And so it requires multimodal treatment. And so you really can't avoid treating the depression in someone who has chronic pain because they kind of go hand in hand.
0: Yes. And we're, we're not going to probably take too deep a dive into the pool of antidepressants, which has been a, a topic that I have certainly gone off on in the past. Uh, I do think that they are vastly overused. The studies don't show that they're terribly effective uh, in the grand scheme of things. And many studies have shown they're no better than placebo. And yet they're the most, some of the most widely prescribed drugs in America, simply because your doctor or your psychiatrist, your family doctor, whatever it may be, wants to do something because it is so prevalent.
1: But don't forget, Doug, placebo is effective 30% of the
0: time. And so a drug that's effective 30% of the time is actually pretty good. Well, as we've said on this program before, the old quote that uh, any doctor that can't make the placebo effect work for him or her is in the wrong business.
1: That's definitely true.
0: Just as an aside, that is a perennial problem in medicine. I always laugh when I, when I hear stories of you know medicine of, like say, the 1700s. And you think what we know about the body, about physiology, about pharmaceutical agents, what we know today compared to what we knew, say, in 1715. <laughs> You're wondering, well, what, were, what was the doctor really doing for somebody back then? Doctors are certainly respected as, as they are today. As a physician today, I just have to shake my head and say, I, I'm, I don't know what they were doing for the patients back then, except giving them a, a liberal dose of placebo.
1: A liberal dose of placebo was right. And then when opiates were discovered, they were over the counter for a long time. There was a lot of men, There were these very strange named tinctures of opium that were taken and were over the counter and not regulated for a long time. In fact, codeine is not regulated in Australia and is available over the counter.
0: Well, many countries. I can recall, Roger, walking into a pharmacy in Thailand and and walking out with some codeine over the counter for, for taking on hikes and things. We went to different med schools, but I'm sure they told you the same thing. If you're going to go to a desert island and you can only take one medication with you, what should it be? And the answer that came back was, well, codeine would be a good choice or another opiate. Because it will take care of your pain, it will help you if you have a bad cough, and it will probably help you if you if your intestines go bad and you need to slow things down. So it's, it's a multi-purpose medication.
1: Used episodically, you know, opiates are extremely effective.
0: Well, R- Roger, I don't know whether you're going to agree with me on this at all, but I look at this and I say, you know, that there's politics involved where it shouldn't be. We've been fighting this so-called war on drugs since Dick Nixon was in the White House. It is, to say the least, not been very effective in slowing drugs down to this country. And there's a lot of talk, of course, you read about illegal drug use from the DEA, whatever. I was quite, kind of startled to realize that when you run the numbers of the 27 million drug abusers in the United States, 22 million of those are pot smokers. We're now seeing an effort to legalize marijuana, you know, across, across the country. And uh, I just wondered to what degree... This so-called opioid crisis is not people saying, well, we still have a job to do. We still are important. We still need to get a large budget because there's a lot of problems going on. When you've only got 5 million people to deal with that are illegal drug users versus 27, well, I guess those those abusers have to look that much worse. That's just my personal theory. I don't know whether you uh, share any of those thoughts or not.
1: Well, I would agree, though, that the drug companies want to self make themselves important. And so do all the regulators. But I think the problem is blown way out of proportion. There's a lot of patients who have chronic pain, chronic pain has been a problem of man probably since we started walking on the earth, and the treatment of the pain is tricky, and it does involve the use of opiate medicine that some people will get addicted to, but the regulatory forces should be rearranged so that the patients can get their medication.
0: We certainly see the pendulum now fully swinging back in the other, other direction, and, and uh, you're hopeful that we'll find a happy medium. All I can say is, I don't know. I sure hope so, but uh, but you know, it, it, things often swing too far in one direction. I don't I don't know. The uh, the claim has been made that we you know we swung too far toward being liberal in the prescription of opiates. And I, I'm just not sure that's true. I think, that, I think that when the pendulum swing was done, we had it about right. We just needed to maintain vigilance over the, the abusing population.
1: I would agree with you, Doug. I think your point's well taken. But the main thrust really should be that people will always have chronic pain and
0: opiates will always be one of our best treatments. That is a statement with which I can find no fault. And maybe to follow up a little bit on on cannabinoids, which are on a lot of people's minds, they're being marketed and touted as great pain relievers. I imagine they have a role to play in this without a doubt, but I'm no expert. So let let me ask you, Roger, what do you think about cannabinoids and their ability to fill in some of the needs?
1: For some patients that have chronic pain and sleep disturbance, there are cannabinoids that are called CBD, cannabidiol, which are not psychoactive. They don't get you high. But they can relieve your pain, and they can also help you to sleep. So I have a lot of patients, probably 20 to 30, that have been addicted to sleeping pills, for instance, and they've switched to a CBD formulation, which doesn't have THC, doesn't get them high, but enables them to sleep, where they'll take 5 or 10 milligrams of a CBD product, And then they're able to sleep, and then they're able to get themselves off of Ambien or the conventional sleeping pills. So there is value to that. There's another uh, value to the cannabinoids and the marijuana-related products in some of the topical salves and ointments and tinctures that are made that you can apply topically that have both THC and CBD, which can help arthritic pains. And a lot of patients that are my biggest proponents and users of marijuana are the elderly who use the topical preparations for arthritis in their knee, their hip, their back, and they get tremendous relief. So I do think they have a role in pain relief. However, they're not nearly as potent as the opiates to relieve pain, both chronic and acute, but they can relieve the insomnia and some
0: of the arthritic pains. So I guess in summary, they they have a role to play, but they are by no means going to be a substitute.
1: They're not the panacea. And then for a, a lot of Uh, older adults THC serves as a relaxer you know kind of like using alcohol in moderation will do and it enhances their life and they feel that it helps them and I think it's worthwhile and I'm glad it has become legal in California and several other states.
0: Now we're medical people not law enforcement people so we probably shouldn't get too lost in the woods of describing you know the realities of the illegal drug trade around the world etc but I think we need to to touch on the fact that, well, for example, other nations have done experiments in legalizing the opioids. Uh, Portugal uh, recently made it legal to have small amounts. They're not, they're not going to let you go if you've got, like, you know, a truckload of opium. But, uh, but small amounts are considered just for personal use, and they stop prosecuting people. And my understanding is that, you know, that the crime rate is going down. Is that not what you understand?
1: I would assume that would be the case if they could get their opiates or opium legally. They wouldn't have to steal or burglarize. And so I would think it would make for a better society.
0: It's alleged that a lot of people illegally using the, the the opioids are people that were hooked by doctors. And I'm really skeptical about that. I think that if 60% of the deaths are coming from illegal use, I just wonder how many, if any, of those were people that started out on you know your prescription uh, Vicodin, and then wound up on (laughs) Chinese fentanyl.
1: The argument, though, is that people start out with a trivial pain, they start taking opiates, and then they can't stop. But the facts are that of the 42,000 deaths in 2016 from opiates, only 40% involved prescription opiates. So were the other 60% of people drug abusers, or were they people that had... Had legitimate pain and had prescription opiates, and then they ran out and decided, well, I'm going to go shoot up heroin, and then it happened but, to but, have fentanyl. But doesn't
0: in it. that again make the case for keeping the drugs more readily available? Because if you died because your doctor, feeling that I'd already given you too many Vicodin and you're not giving you any more, if that person takes to the street to relieve his pain and then dies because he got a bad batch of something from Shanghai, well, doesn't that speak to the fact that they should be kept more legal? I would
1: agree completely. Yeah, If the drugs were legal, the people would be able to get it, and then they wouldn't be taking these varieties of heroin and, that are tainted with carfentanil and fentanyl, which are much more potent than morphine and heroin, that
0: they can get on the street. You know, and before we close shop today in this discussion, there is one thing we probably also ought to throw out, to remind people of the number of deaths that take place in the United States each year due to another addicting drug, in this case nicotine in the form of uh, cigarettes uh, if you look it up on the web we encourage you to do this you will know that the latest statistics still indicate that in spite of all the efforts to reduce smoking in this country it is involved in one out of every five deaths more than 480,000 deaths annually which i, I think, I think something getting lost in the shuffle here talking about opioid.
1: yeah if you compare the opiate deaths which is 42,000 Then you're looking at 100,000 people die each year from alcohol-related causes, drinking and driving. Uh That's double. And then you even go to uh, cigarettes and tobacco, which are 480,000 deaths each year. So you need to... 10x. Yeah, 10x. You need to put this whole problem in perspective. Addiction has its toll on our society, and alcohol and tobacco addictions need to be effectively treated. And we should encourage people to get treatment for their opiate addiction. But addiction from cigarettes is a far greater problem.
0: And really, in closing, we should note that addiction in general is, is becoming, I think, more in the crosshairs as we realize that people on the Internet, gamers and others who are just addicted to Facebook, I mean, they're admitting at these companies, Google, Facebook, etc., that they're closely studying what it takes to addict people and then employing those methods to addict you so that your information is then sold. This is not going to go away, and I'm glad to see that at least it's getting some notice in the public currently. This is a big deal, and perhaps, Roger, you should come back in the future and we can talk about that at some greater length at some future point. I just
1: think it's important to realize that opiate addiction is a problem, but it's really important that people with chronic pain get treatment and that they be able to live a normal life. And I have seen so many people that have their lives are able to continue and are able to be advanced and enhanced so that they feel better and can participate with their families just by using opiates, which is amazing. And so it seems like right now the pendulum is swinging. So we want to take these people so that they cannot get treatment and cannot get their opiates. And then there's so many barriers that they're going to become depressed and they're going to commit suicide. So it's important that the pendulum swing so that these people get the treatment that they need so that they don't become depressed and so that our number of suicides does not increase.
0: I share your, your fear in that, Roger. I think it would be a great tragedy that this effort to so-called, in this so-called crisis is going to result in a lot of people becoming despondent and, and ending their lives. It's a terrible, terrible specter of that uh, looming over us. Yes. Well, I think we've covered the basis reasonably well. Dr. Roger Orman, thank you very much for coming on to Radio Parallax. And don't be a stranger. Let's, let's come on and talk about something else in the future, perhaps addiction in general. I don't know. Something.
1: Maybe we should go see another
0: eclipse. We should see another eclipse. And in the meantime, we hope to investigate uh, a little further, perhaps, the role that kava may play as, as a medicine.
1: Sounds good. I want to thank you for having me on your show, Douglas. It's always been my pleasure to be around you. Thank you very much.
0: That about does it for today's program. Our thanks again to Dr. Roger Orman. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time, and uh, take up where we left off in trying to find what really happened back in 1971 when Daniel Ellsberg came forward to publish the Pentagon Papers.